This is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, November 28, 2023. And today will be better than yesterday. And I promise you, Taylor, I think you back me up on this, that none of those who work in this podcast are AI fakes or that we will make up anything. What do you think? Cannot confirm or deny, Buster. <laughs> that, of course, is the voice of Taylor Schwenk, who's back in Connecticut. So is Sarah Abbott coming off a great Thanksgiving. I'm Buster only in my home in Montana. Uh, some news and notes before we get going today. We have an absolutely packed show today. Sonny Gray agreed to a three-year, $75 million deal with the St. Louis Cardinals, who've also signed Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson. We'll be talking with Derek Gould, the great beat writer from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, uh, about the St. Louis signings. On Monday, the Cardinals introduced Sonny Gray in a press conference. I don't have anything prepared or anything, but, um, I mean, Moe's right. I uh, Going into this thing, I wanted to be a Cardinal. Um, that started probably a little over a year ago. Um, it's a place that every time I've come here as a visitor, I've, um, I've looked at the stadium and I've said, wow, this place is, this place is incredible. Um, I looked around the seats and I've seen the fans and the fans continue to show up and they support this team. And then you, you talk around the league and you talk around different guys who have been all over the place and um, everybody raves about St. Louis. Some other signings. Uh, Jason Hayward agreed to a one-year, $9 million deal to return to the Dodgers. Last year, he had 269, 15 homers, compiled a 2.2 war, according to Fangraphs. The Diamondbacks filled their hole at third base, acquiring A. Juanio Suarez from the Mariners. Mike Schilt last week was named as the manager of the San Diego Padres. Here's Mike Schilt talking about working with A.J. Preller. And I know this group and talking to some of the guys already. I know there was some um, disappointment, clear disappointment in the clubhouse at the end of the season that I'm sure will uh, resonate with the group moving forward. You know, ultimately it's going to be about playing winning baseball. And I alluded to it, you know, it's really has four components to me. There's a lot of things that fall into these components, but it starts with us being together. And I don't want to misrepresent this group wasn't together last year. That wouldn't be, the, that wouldn't be accurate. Um, just making sure we, we continue to develop a team and a, and a one mentality of singular purpose to win baseball games. Kenton Maeda reached a two-year, $24 million agreement with the Detroit Tigers. And this coming weekend, there will be a special committee vote uh, that will include the likes of Jeff Bagwell, Tom Glavin, Chipper Jones, picking the next round of Hall of Famers from a special committee. Uh, some of those uh, who are going to be considered include Joe West, Ed Monahue, former general manager Hank Peters, former manager Lou Pinella, Jim Leland, Cito Gaston, Davey Johnson. I'll be asking Paul and Bikitis coming up who in that group he would vote for. All right, Taylor, what else you got? Buster, ton going on in college football. The College Game Day podcast has you covered. They're recapping the game. They're talking about Texas A&M hiring Mike Elko. Uh, who's going to get that number four slot in the college football playoff? A lot going on. Reese Davis, Pete Thamel, and Ryan McGee. You can watch that on YouTube or listen to it on this podcasting platform. Jumping into the numbers. numbers. This is Himbo Knows on Baseball Tonight. 
And hello is Paul Emikides, who is the right-hand man for Mike Greenberg, who's out right now with COVID, he announced on Monday. Hembo, what do you hear from Green? Is he doing okay? He's doing okay. He's in high spirits. He and I were on a call for uh, our our next book tomorrow, uh, yesterday. So uh, everything is fine. He's obviously just tested positive and since testing negative. And so my expectation is he'll be back later in the week. We'll be back on the radio together talking about some such nonsense. Uh, I'm certainly sure that will happen soon enough. I thought for sure he was just sick about the Jets. I mean, it's been <laughs> horrific how bad they are. Like yes, It's but, um, shocking how bad they are. Yeah, wa- watching the Jets play offense uh, can impact a man physically to such an extent that they would have to take a week off of work. But in this case, it was just COVID. But I, I actually understand your suspicion there because watching the Jets has been so incredibly painful. The, you know, the season ticket package that they that they should offer should be in reverse. If they pay these fans enough money, they might wind up showing up to these games the rest of the season. Well, the good thing is they have a great plan for 2024, which is to again rely on uh, the health of a 40-year-old quarterback. I think that's really smart. And all, of the, that- and all of the bad people that he decided to bring in, like the offensive coordinator and right. his favorite receiver, who was a healthy scratch last week. We're finding out yeah. that Aaron Rodgers is a much better quarterback than he is a general manager. <laughs> that's not rare for stars, as you know. <laughs> all right. One star who's being talked about a lot in the free agent market is Shohei Otani. Uh, you, uh, I reached out to you and to Sarah Langs about uh, an article I'm working on about imagining Otani in different lineups, which is to me is a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I, I love the idea of putting him in the Dodgers lineup and trying to figure out, you know, how they would configure the order that would include Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman if he were to go to the Texas Rangers. My God, <laughs> like, what do you do with him? Because you, you got Corey Seager, uh, etc. But the, one of the notes that you sent me essentially uh, was a, a, around the idea that whoever assigns Otani is going to get more than just his production. Please explain. That's exactly right. Um, lineup protection is sort of a controversial topic that we'll dip into now and again on this podcast. And I'm a believer that over a long period of time, in most cases, it's not really a thing, which is to say it's very difficult to quantify how a human being hitting behind another human being makes the first one better. But in the case of Shohei Otani, specifically when it comes to Mike Troutbuster, the numbers are actually loud enough to where if I were his representation, this would be in the first chapter of my pitch to prospective free agent teams. So in the 235 games in which Otani hit behind Trout, Trout had an OPS north of 1,000, 1038 to be exact, with 85 home runs and 179 RBIs. That's a 58 home run pace over 162 games. But that's just the very surface of this buster. Here's where I think Otani's mere presence is so valuable. When Otani hit behind Trout, he saw a higher percentage of pitches in the zone, saw a lower percentage of non-competitive pitches, swung at a higher percentage of pitches as a result, and naturally a lower percentage of his at-bats reached a three-ball count. What I'm telling you is that over a durable period of time in this case, Mike Trout, obviously one of the great players of all time, was directly impacted positively and benefited enormously from Shohei Otani hitting behind him because it improved the pitch profile that he saw. And this is not a small sample size. We're talking about more than 200 games of evidence that when comparing all other such games, Mike Trout did not see the same kind of pitch profile. So imagine him hitting behind Freddie Freeman or Aaron Judge or Pete Alonso or literally whomever. What you can do if you're a GM is throw those, you know, let's say theoretically two players in the middle of your lineup 
basically you can just fake it to average with the rest of the seven guys and put all of your resources into other stuff because so long as those two guys are healthy, they're going to absolutely mash in part because the other exists. So look, we can look at Shohei Otani's baseball reference page or just watch him play one night and say, yeah, this guy's an absolutely brilliant star, but he's an actual force multiplier, which is something that very few hitters in baseball have ever been able to say. All right. Along those lines, then I'm going to hit the, you with this cold. If you were Dave Roberts and you're writing out your lineup and you and the Dodgers signed Shohei Otani, how would you hit them? The first three hitters in that order. I'm assuming you're not bringing in Will Smith or Gavin Lux or, you know, any of the other guys, those three guys, Betts, Freeman and Otani are hitting one, two and three. How are you arranging them? Because I got a strong opinion on this one. Interesting. Uh, Betts is my leadoff hitter. Otani sitting second. And Freddie Freeman is hitting third. My, in a nutshell, uh, reasoning for it is you hit your best hitter second, and with rare exception, and Otani is the best hitter um, on, in that lineup and probably the best hitter on the planet right now. Okay, so I'm hitting him second. Mookie Betts has already established himself as a Hall of Fame leadoff hitter, and I'm not moving him off of that spot. And Freddie Freeman is going to drive in so many people hitting third. Look, it would be an embarrassment of riches, but I don't know that any team in the history of the sport has been able to go one, two, three, the way that the Dodgers could. I'll obviously look into that. Should that day come? Should it happen? But my goodness, all you'd have to be is average the rest of the, the, rest of the way to lead the National League in runs. Yeah, you mentioned potential protection for Freddie Freeman. Campbell, I, I think he's one of those hitters where protection doesn't matter. I think he's going to have the same plate appearance, whether it's a left-handed uh, pitcher on the mound, right-hander, no matter who's hitting behind him, Freddie has the same approach. He's going to try to hit line drives over the shortstop, and he's going to be successful doing that. Does that make sense to you? That I, oh. I, I'm definitely putting Freddie behind Shohei, and I know the pressure would be on opposing teams to pitch to Shohei because of Freddie's presence, knowing that he's probably going to hit a line drive someplace. <laughs> yeah, Freddie Freeman, I think, would hit 350. I, I honestly believe. Right. Hitting before or behind Shohei Otani, because I really yeah. do think these guys would – feed off of each other's energy in, in such a way. And I don't think, like, it's hard to, again, it's a difficult thing to quantify, but I'd love to be in the meetings with these pitching staffs when they're devising how in the world we're going to game plan against the top of that order. And the way that you're going to pitch each of those guys is going to be different based upon who's sitting behind them. And like I said before, that is a really rare thing. Texas Rangers, you have a lineup that includes Marcus Simeon, Corey Seager, Dolly Garcia, Evan Carter, who showed that great discipline, you know, at age 21. How would you arrange Shohei Otani in that group? I'm front loading my lineup again. I'm leading off with Semyon. I'm hitting Otani three and I'm hitting, uh, excuse me, Otani two and I'm hitting Seager three. Yeah. I, I believe uh, philosophically that putting your best hitter or your best hitters further down in the order to maximize oppor RBI opportunities is actually a net negative. Because what you wind up do, uh, wind up doing over the course of 162 games is just costing them at bats, and yep. that's not going to be an issue with the Rangers lineup with its length. Like you're gonna you're gonna drive it 100 runs as their leadoff hitter, as we saw last year, just by the fact that they're so long, they're so deep. What you want to do is maximize the number of plate appearances for your best guys. Stack uh, you know, the the idea of stretching out or spreading out your best hitters across the lineup is nonsense. They've been doing it in baseball for a hundred years, and only the stupid teams still do it. I'm putting Otani two. I'm putting Seager three. I'm leading off Simeon, and I'm going to probably win the World Series of, again if I can do that. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I agree <laughs> with you, and I think Seager's a lot like Freddie in that I think I mean first off his his default position is aggressiveness. You know he's going to swing at the first pitch as if it's a strike. He's going to have the same plate appearance no matter who's batting behind him. 
Does that make um, sense? Yes, it does. And the other thing we need to consider here is that Otani runs really well. And so yes. think about the think about the action that you could put on if you're Bruce Boshi, if you're Dave Roberts, with Corey Seager up and Otani on first, with Freddie Freeman up and Otani on first. If you have high contact line drive hitters, you can do all sorts of things to manufacture a run if you decide that you want to. Because Otani, you can put in motion, just like you can put Semi in motion, like just like you can put, uh, put Mookie Betts in motion. So that's why, to me, Otani hitting at the top of your lineup provides you so many opportunities. So many options. You're not going to just have to, you know, uh, swing from your heels. Like these guys can, you can manufacture runs when he's hitting second for you because obviously Otani is a freak and probably the best power hitter in the sport, but he can go first to third on a single. He can score from first on a double. You can hit and run with these guys. And if you have someone hitting behind him without much swing and miss, you can really, really uh, do some damage in that sense. Look, we can play out this exercise with the Yankees. We could play it out with the Mets. Uh, you could play it out with the Red Sox. But the last one I'm going to give you, and you could play it out with the Giants, although it's clear, no, <laughs> Otani's going to hit where he wants in that lineup. Like, it's not that big of a deal. It's just having any plate appearances in that lineup. Uh, the last one I'm give you, the Toronto Blue Jays, because I would go Bichette, one. I would go Otani, two. And I would go Vlad, three feeling like that Vladdy's going to be have a bounce back year in 2024. So that's a very interesting one, Buster, because I actually think that Vlad Jr. is someone that amongst all these players that we've discussed could actually really use the protection because um, because Vlad Jr. is does not have right. the same kind of shrewd command of the strike zone that some of these other hitters might like someone like Aaron Judge or Freddie Freeman or Corey Seager. Uh, I would I would sooner hit Vlad Jr. Um, uh, I'm going to make sure that I, I think about this clearly because I think it's in his case, it's especially important. I'm hitting Vlad Jr. second in that lineup, Buster. I'm doing well, it. You know, you and I are spitballing on this a little doing bit. It. I, I almost feel like you could hit Vlad one, Otani two, Bichette three, knowing that Bichette's a little bit like a right-handed Corey Seager and that he's going to be aggressive. Like Dante, I mean, uh, Bo Bichette is going to swing. Uh, and if you had Vlad hitting leadoff, we know this. He, he takes his share of walks, Right. Uh, and and you're right. He probably, among the hitters we talked about, would benefit from having Otani behind him. So maybe you go forget the speed, forget the the base running stuff. Just put Vladdy one, put Otani two, and put Bichette three. Look, that's really really fun. I mean, so long as there isn't anything illegal about leading off Vlad Jr. I mean, we saw the the Phillies <laughs> do it in the last two years with Kyle Schwarber. Honestly, I think it's kind of ingenious. Like if we're gonna if we're gonna live in a world in which we could lead off Vlad Jr., which is a fun world to live in, I think he has perhaps more to benefit from Otani hitting behind him than practically any hitter in baseball because yeah. his contact profile is ab like it's Hall of Fame worthy. Like when his barrel meets the baseball, he can do incredible things. But his problem is the other stuff that comes with uh, creating an at-bat and, and his pitch and his swing decisions and things of that nature. And as I demonstrated with the numbers when it came to Mike Trout, Otani can fix some of those things just by being there. So if I'm Vlad Jr. and I can see a higher share of fastballs, I can see a higher share of pitches in the zone. I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna reach the deeper counts quite as often, and I can just go up there and 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 hunt, hunt and and, and like sometimes in the in, you know split the split the plate in half, um, guess a certain pitch, whatever the case may be. He could absolutely. I mean, like Vlad Jr. has already demonstrated that he could play at an MVP level. He could do it again. But I, I, look, I love that. I love the idea of leading off Vlad Jr., hitting Shohei Otani behind him. It's not obvious to me that, that Bo Bichette's going to be a Blue Jay next year, but if he is, that would be an absolutely dynamic one, two, three, no doubt. And you would reduce the double play opportunities with Vlad Jr. by 20 to 25%, depending on whether or not, you know, in a game he'd get four plate appearances or five. Right away in that mm -hmm. first plate appearance, he's not hitting on a double play, which is kind of a, you know, a thing for him, a factor That's for really him. That's really fun. That's so fun.
All right. So uh, let's do a few more before you go. Let's talk about the Hall of Fame class. Look, I, I think that this year's Hall of Fame class is actually a little bit cut and dried. Like Adrian Beltre definitely is going to be in. And, you know, I've, I've written in the past, I think Chase Utley's in. That's up for debate. Joe Maurer, I think, will get in. I find the special committee vote to be a little bit more intriguing uh, because of some of the names that are in there. Jim Leland, uh, Lou Pinella. Uh, you know, I, I, the umpires, uh, Joe West, Ed Monahue. If you were in the special committee room on Sunday night and you were part of that vote, who would you uh, pick? I, I think I would believe it or not, Buster. I would lean towards arguing in favor of Cedo Gaston, um, yeah. who's you know who's you know managerial resume, if you will, might not be quite as impressive as some of his contemporaries or some of the guys that are with him on that list. But I mean, to, to, to lead that franchise to back-to-back World Series, given the sort of influx of players that, you know, were on, like there was a lot of turnover uh, in the second year uh, when it came to those teams. And like when I recently did some, some research on those guys in a way that I did not recall. And so obviously, um, Cito Gaston's leadership and managerial style and success was evidenced in that sense. But I also harken back to a conversation I once had with Roberto Alomar, um, who I think you and I both believe is just among the most brilliant players to ever play that position or to play at all during his uh, generation. And of all the teams he played for, of all the managers he played under, of all the players he played with, the person he told me most impacted him in the game of baseball was Cito Gaston. And that's really stood out to me as someone who had really run the gamut in terms of playing for so many good managers, playing for so many different high-level organizations. That really stood out. So when I look at that guy's resume, even though he doesn't necessarily have the body of work um, we know that body of work isn't the most important thing when it comes to some of these committees. A lot of it is word of mouth. A lot of it is what do players think of him? What did his peers think of him? And Cito Gaston was so highly regarded and well-respected by his peers and especially his players that I think he would definitely get my vote of confidence in such a conversation. Uh, real quick, I got two topics for you. We got about two sure. and a half minutes. Tell mm-hmm. me, Adrian Beltre, should he be unanimous selection? Because I think he should. Uh, I do too. Um, he has... He checks both boxes for me, Buster. In terms of the career value, he's the all-time leader at his position in hits, runs, RBIs, doubles, and total bases. He's the all-time leader in defensive runs saved, which is a 20-year-old stat. He's number one in producing defensive value over the last 20 years. And I think where he might lose some people is when it came to his peak. But there was a seven-year span from 10 to 16. His age is 31 through uh, 37 seasons, by the way. And it was fourth in value produced by war behind only Mike Trout, Robinson Cano, who would be a Hall of Famer if it weren't for the steroids, and Miguel Cabrera. He got uh, MVP votes in every one of those seasons. So to me, he clearly checks all those boxes and in such an underrepresented position. To me, Adrian Beltre should be a slam dunk first ballot Hall of Famer. Unanimous, no doubt, but we know how the writers do with those kinds of things. Even before December, the Cardinals signed three free agent starting pitchers. Uh, As you've seen on social media, a lot of conversation about the age the 2023 performance uh, of Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson in particular, how much better the Cardinals get with these three signings? Uh, Hardly. Um, I think the Cardinals, look, I don't know that they, I wouldn't say that they wasted a lot of money here. I think there are some teams for whom Sonny Gray would be worth $75 million over the next three years, but but it's not the Cardinals, boss. There are just a couple numbers that, that really stand out to me here is that the Cardinals ranked 30th. They were dead last in defensive efficiency last season. They allowed a batting average on balls in play of 321. That was the Cardinals' wow. worst mark since they began tracking that stat in 1914. And so you're going to sit here and tell me that you're going to bring in um, uh, a new ace, I, I guess, theoretically. By the way, all five of your starting pitchers next year are going to be 33 and older. But a new ace in Sonny Gray's case, 
who lives on the barrel in some cases. Um, Sonny Gray's strikeout rate and swing and miss rate are about league average. Um, last season, Cardinal starters allowed 150 more balls in play than any group in the entire sport. What the Cardinals are doing is building a rotation to win 10, 15, 20 years ago with players that they don't have. And I think this is what happens when you can't develop. The Cardinals ceased to be able to develop starting pitching. What happened to Daniel Ponce de Leon and Dakota Hudson and Jack Flaherty? What's happened to Matthew Liberatore? They also failed to build an, uh, an off uh, excuse me an off ramp for Yadier Molina, so they had to sign Wilson Contreras. The Cardinals are doing uncardinals like things, and when you have to build your entire rotation with mid thirty something starting pitchers, you're in for a rough season. Like I think the Cardinals are in really bad shape, and I think they continue to exacerbate where they are by spending money to cover up for the fact that they don't produce players the way that the Cardinals used to. Yeah, and it feels like we're going to be talking with Derek Gold of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch coming up about the Cardinals. We'll be asking Jake Peavy about it as well. Uh, I really, it, it feels like from the outside when I saw the signings, and I think Sonny Gray is a terrific pitcher, but it feels like that they tried to do this on the cheap, um, you know, where you sign two one-year deals, you sign a three-year deal. You're not really going in deep. You know, you're not saying, you know what, we believe in Blake Snell. Or we believe in this player. We believe in this player. We're going hard. We're trading a bunch of guys. We're going to go out and get Dylan Cease. We're going to sign him to an extension. We're going to go out and trade for Tyler Glass now. It felt like they kind of went around the fridges in part maybe to keep up, you know, to prop up the guys that they're contending. So it'll be really, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I, I'm, I think I'm more along the lines of where you are in terms of skepticism about whether or not this is going to work out. All right, Hembo, thanks for doing this. Always great to talk with you. Later, friends. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick of Hembo. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Jake Peavy pitched a long time in the big leagues, and now he's in Mobile, Alabama, which, uh, Peavy, I've always thought of Mobile as maybe if you were to go away from Cooperstown, Mobile, you can make a case that is the center of baseball history. Right? It, it feels buckets. like the baseball. Yes, right? Yeah, I mean, given the, who came through Mobile, right? Oh, gosh. Coming in hot, uh, you are. None of this on the rundown. I, I love it. Yes, Mobile, Alabama, being a, a child and being born here, baseball runs as deep as it runs anywhere in America, I believe. When you talk about just the five Hall of Famers being Hank Aaron and, and Willie McCovey, Satchel Page, Ozzie Smith, Billy Williams, uh, that, that's five incredible baseball players. And then you start branching into the state, Willie Mays being an 
Alabama boy just up the road in Birmingham. That's going to be amazing with Major League Baseball going back to Rickwood Field in, in Birmingham. But look, I, Buster, tell you a quick story to start it off. You know, a lot of people don't know. I wore 22 because it was my father's number when I was in high school. And then when I went to the minor leagues right out of high school, I wore, I continued to wear 22. When I got to the big leagues, June 20th in, in 2002 in San Diego, I walked in Friday night before I was to make my debut Saturday versus the Yankees. And number 44 was hanging in my locker. Wow. That number is Willie McCovey and Willie Mays from my yes. hometown's number. I, I, you just think the, the Hank Aaron, guy. Hank Aaron, oh, Hank Aaron. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Hank Aaron, yeah. Hank Aaron and Willie McCovey. I, I say Willie McCovey first because my career, I wore 44 so proudly, never um, broadcast that by any means because I would never associate my name in, in, in those greats, but, but wore that number with huge honor until I got to San Francisco, get to be with Willie McCovey in the last few years of his life. I couldn't wear number 44 because it was retired for him. But getting a chance to know him, I, I went back to 22, which I couldn't believe uh, was available. Will the Thrill should have that number retired in San Francisco. But uh, I think he did now, uh, just recently. But um, a full circle story, but Mobile, Alabama, and the greats that came before me. So many live uh, around. I see Lance Johnson all the time. John Lieber lives down the street, another former great uh, pitcher. But the names go on and on. All right. Uh, before we, and I want to talk to you about the free agent class of starting pitchers. Uh, but before we get to that, at some point, uh, I'm guessing you ran across Hank Aaron. Uh, you mentioned being around Willie McCovey. Uh, Willie Mays is around the Giants from time to time. Just if you can relate uh, a story or two from those. Well, yeah, getting to meet Hank Aaron. We have Hank Aaron Stadium here in Mobile, Alabama. And um, that was my first interactions with Hank being a Bay Bear player, him coming over. I, I, I mean, he was larger than life. Um, you know, showing up in Mobile was, you know, bigger than the president maybe coming to town for Hank. <laughs> I, I would like to think that he, he was, uh, I think he showed me some favoritism amongst the boys because my, my being from Mobile. And then we re remained close and stayed in contact. His uh, ability to, to treat everyone um, with respect and hear them, but also, uh, to over the years of his life formulate his opinion and beliefs and, and push for them and stand hard by them. He was a, a just a, a monster um, of a human being in, in the best of, of ways uh, to, to go through what he went through. And, and then, like you said, Willie Mays being around in San Francisco to get traded back to Boach and Flannery and the guys who had raised me in the games. And then to, to sit in Murph's office with Willie Mays and Willie McCovey it was a dream come true. And listening to these stories, Willie Mays talking about, you know, not being able to play road games at Rick Woodfield because he was in high school. Dream come true. Meeting all the people outside of the people you played with and got to do what you do. You know, Buster, I chased uh, on and off the field uh, incredible experiences. That's awesome. You got that, you know, uh, and Henry Aaron, I always love every time we were with Dusty Baker, he had the greatest stories about him from their time with the Atlanta Braves together. And, uh, you know, Bob Kendrick, head of the Negro Leaves Museum, tells great stories about him. So I'm, I'm really happy for you that you had that experience. All right, let's talk about the free agent class. Cardinals are the talk of today because, incredibly, we're not even into December, and they have filled out the three spots in their rotation with free agents, with Lance Lynn, with Cal Gibson, uh, and with Sonny Gray. And not 
you know, a knock on any one of those three, but I'm surprised that they're not being more aggressive, quite frankly. I thought that they would come in and, you know, be one of the the big bidders for some of the, the biggest ticket items on the board. What do you think about what they've done so far? Do you think they're out completely on, on any other big names? I know they've been. I do. Yep. I do. Okay. So, well, look, here, here's what I'll say. I, I like the acquisitions of the three. I, I Like you said, of course, I would like to see them go out and really get somebody uh, uh, young and, and established uh, even more so than even a Sonny Gray, which is hard to do. But I like what they've done. I, I think the Central's winnable. Milwaukee's going backwards. Um, for sure. The Cubs are there, but there's going to be some turnover. And, and uh, you know, the Cubs are certainly going to make some moves. And if they pair in a, a front-end starter with Steele and, and the rest of that talented bunch, they need bullpen help as well. But to me, both of these central divisions are very winnable divisions. If you're any right. team, I can make the case for yourself to, to win. The Cardinals, I think you can make the bunch with Arenado and Goldschmidt uh, the other seven guys that will complete their 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 lineup are arguably young and talented as anybody in that division. I love Jordan Walker. I mean, you're trying to figure out how does Dylan Carlson even get in the the mix. Um, uh, Lars Newtbar and, and Tommy Edmond, all these guys. Tyler O'Neill, Wilson Contreras is a superstar, all star player. Does he come back and round into form and be that? The Cardinals can can do that with Gray, and then you put. Gibson and Lynn at the end. I like the experience. Kyle Gibson, I think, made a huge impact on those young pitchers in, in, in Baltimore. And then you put Michaelis and Matt in the middle, two and three, and asked Michaelis to get back to form of being a, a number one-ish guy. Matt, and then the Libertor is just 23 years old. He's the sixth swing man that's going to be in the mix at some point in time with an injury. I think that team can win the, the – especially with the culture and, and Sonny Gray and, and Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson, what they're going to bring to you edge-wise. So I, I think the Cardinals could have done more, but I, they can still win that division uh, without doing more because they're not in the East or, or the, some of these West divisions. One of the pitchers that were connected with the Cardinals before they signed these free agents was Yoshinobu, and I really am going to be better pronouncing his name as sure as time goes along, Yamamoto from Japan. Uh, I, I never, and I know I talked with a bunch of agents who feel like they were never serious players on this, because Yamamoto's in a position where he's got all the big boys coming after him. He's in a unique position of having the Mets and the Yankees full bore needing a player like him, a free agent at age 25, the Dodgers with all their problems in the rotation that they have. First off, your observations of what uh, you've seen of Yamamoto, uh, and I'm assuming most of it's on video, uh, and what team could you see stepping out? And I would say this too, Jake, like there have been projections, $225 million, and I'm like, no, I think he's because of the teams that are coming after him, I think he's going to wind up doing better than what people expect. What do you think? I'm all in, Buster. I, I, I'm with you. I think Boston's a big-time player. I, I think everybody – I think there's a need for starting pitching. I, we can get into this, starters versus openers, and I'm romantic about the starting pitcher. I love that all 30 teams are in desperate need of starting pitching. I love that the playoffs show that if you have established starting pitching that can really do what a starting pitcher is asked and has been asked for a long time to do, you have a distinct advantage. Whoever signs this guy, I think, is changing their organization for the next 10 years. I'm all in, Buster. These 
Uh, Japanese Asian-born players seem to develop the split finger as their second pitch. But whereas over here, I think it's it's fastball, curveball, fastball, slider. We talk about the changeup, and, and when a guy perfects it or the split, uh, he does it. Kevin Gosman's one of those guys who's done it. There's many more. But when these Asian guys come over and Yamamoto has fastball, elite command, and elite fastball, the split play, he's got the breaking ball, but he's got the split, the three-pitch mix at an elite level at 25 years old. You've seen the competitive nature. I'm all in. Yeah, I love the the video to give you an idea of, of what teams might do when he finishes off a, a start that Brian Cashman, the general manager of the Yankees, attended. You can see the video of Cashman giving him a standing ovation behind home plate. <laughs> and you're like, okay, that was a precursor for you know what uh, we've seen from the Yankees. When they were in need, when they were struggling, they went all in and set a record with uh, CC Sabathia. They went all in and set a need uh, or set a record uh, you know, with uh, signing Garrett Cole. And I, I would expect that they're going to be all in uh, on Yamamoto. I do want to have you on again to talk about the starting pitching and and where we're headed with that. Uh, as you know, there's a lot of conversation about rules to to get back to reestablishing the preeminence of starting pitchers. It's not only good for baseball, but I think it'd be great for the union too to have starting pitchers get back to being paid, uh, you know, significantly. So uh, I, I, you know, before I just want to talk go, about the days. I just want to talk about the days when I'm watching ESPN. In the bottom line, in the the matchup means something to me, and and right. those, and I go to the ballpark to see certain starting pitchers. You know, I just want that back. I, I don't care about the analytics and what everybody says. It's better for our game. Yeah, I think I've made the case before, Jake, that I, I really feel like the starting pitchers need to be the you know the Hulk Hogan's of the sport. They need to be the headliners. They need to be the guy that. If you're sitting at home, uh, you're sitting in your office at four o'clock. Well, maybe I'll go to the, you know, at a game tonight. You need the headliners to draw in those extra five to ten percent, and and to create storylines. I, I I just simply not a fan of the parade of relievers, and it's not a knock on any of those individual guys. I just found it more compelling when Madison Bumgarner goes out and, and basically puts a team on his back the way that he did, you know, put you guys on his back in 2014. Without question, Buster. I think everybody does. Anybody with, with any kind of uh, sense has watched the game and, and has loved the game like we do. Uh, it's not a knock against any analytic or, or any certain pitchers. I would just love to see it get back to that. I tell you what we've got to do another job of, and we'll move on, a better job of, is getting our players. It's driving me crazy that Shohei's saying that if anything gets leaked, he's going to dock teams. Like, it, it was great to – to follow this. And, and and now, you know, being a media member, killing me that these guys are wanting to be so private about visiting with teams. You know what? You're the biggest stars in the world. That's just what comes along with it. We've got to get some of our big MLB stars to do more of what Mookie Betts and others are doing and embrace, um, you know, the platform that you have and, and use it for good and growing our game if you really want to do that. I'm going to tell you a story that's going to make you shake your head. You remember when Otani got the MVP? Uh, he had that dog that was alongside him and, and everyone was talking about how cute the dog was. And then, you know, and that was part of the show with him. Well, I, I reached out to various people and I said, Hey, just real quick question. Everyone on social media is wondering what the dog's name is. And I got back, well, they're not going to release that at this time. And I'm just like, come on, 
<laughs> no, Share a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I don't know who's responsible for it. I, I tell you what, it's it's my mission within trying to help the game that I love to, to break down some of the walls. And him not speaking to the media in Anaheim, and you, you can't win the MVP and do that. I love Shohei. I'm the biggest fan of Shohei. But for our, the betterment of MLB in our game, we've got to have him speaking to the fans. And I, I love all the charitable work and the giving of the gloves. He's certainly got a big heart. Speak to the children and, and, you know, um, embrace some of it. You have to, buddy. Yeah. Uh, all right. And, and that reflects how you were during your career. You always uh, you enjoyed it. You reminded me of Tony Gwynn, who I covered as a reporter in that Tony loved to share baseball. You love to share baseball, which is why one of my favorite stories about you was when Travis Ishikawa had the hit that was pennant winning for the Giants. Uh, you guys were going crazy. And you told me right after that, like, oh, my God, I screwed up. Like, I, because I, I didn't realize that he'd hit a home run. And you went out and you greeted him by third base, if you can tell that story. And there's a particular reason for the fact that you ran out there. Oh, look, it, it, I, I ruined the biggest moment of his career. You know, third meeting him at third base is being generous. I met him at about the shortstop position, you know. <laughs> Travis Ishikawa, I, I should start with this, was an instrumental part of that 2014 run. We don't win the World Series without him. Uh, certainly, uh, this moment was in game five again in the NLCS against the Dodgers, Michael Walker, or the, the Cardinals, excuse me. Michael Walker was in the game and Travis Ishikawa. All we needed what was a base hit at this point in time to send us to the World Series. Um, this was going to be back-to-back years for me after coming off the high of 13. I was riding it again in the playoffs of 14. As you know, Buster, my eyesight is not, and anybody who's been around me, not, not well. I get compliments sometimes on my eyes, and it's my least favorite thing I have on my body. Um, I, I have 20-40 vision even with corrective lenses and no LASIK because of the shape of them, just bad deal. I didn't see this ball go out of the ballpark. I thought it was hit too much on the line drive. So I think double walk off hit and I meet him and just go to embrace him. And I'll never forget him going, you know, in that moment, I've embraced a bunch of walk off hits. I was always one of the first to be out there and celebrate him going, get off me. Get off me. And and, and me going, what happened? And him, him telling me it's a home run. The, um, the funny part about it is, look, if you watch the video, I, I let him go. I have a jacket on, no number. I wish I had my jersey on. But I just followed him and rounded the bases all the way to home plate like I hit it. Uh, so uh, I, I got a, a, a really cool uh, moment like I hit that walk off there for a, a quick second. I just was looking around, taking it in, just rounding the bases with him. Uh, kind of reminiscent of the Hank Aaron moment with some of the fans. Right, exactly. Well, I love that story about you. All right, Pete, thanks for doing this. It's always fun to talk with you, and uh, and, uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. I appreciate it, Buster. Derek Gold covers the St. Louis Cardinals for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Derek, how you doing on this Tuesday? I'm good. It's great to hear from you. Hope you had a lovely holiday week. I did. Uh, I was not as busy as you were with the Cardinals, uh, <laughs> even before December 1st, uh, filling all their needs in their rotation, at least three different spots. Uh, what did you think of the Sonny Gray signing? You know, it's one that was on the horizon from, boy, I'm trying to think back. When, when the Cardinals pivoted from a team trying to a contend to a seller to a team looking to quickly rebuild, 
it was very clear that Sonny Gray was going to be near the top of their list of pursuits. They felt like they could make a really compelling offer to him. They felt they had a good feel for him. They had, I mean, you go way back to Vanderbilt. They had scouted him. They tried trading for him before. Um, there was just a lot about what they were looking for to put at or near the top of their rotation that Sonny Gray brought. And they thought also if they made it in the right way and came across as just the right amount of aggressive, that they could get it done before winter meetings, before all the other, um, even while some of the other starters were waiting to happen. They, they just felt they had a good offer to make him, um, both uh, both with the clubhouse, but also financially. So tell me, I mean, put this number into context, three years and $75 million within the St. Louis Cardinals world. So it's not the most guaranteed money that they've ever given a starter, but it has the potential to be the first $100 million contract that they've ever um, finalized with a starter. How it gets there is it has a team option for 2027 that's worth $30 million. Um, really the last time, that they came this close to a deal that would be nine figures with a pit pitcher. And it would have guaranteed nine figures, not just given the opportunity nine figures. It was David Price with the same agent as Sonny Gray. So the Cardinals have not been a team to go outside their organization and spend like this on pitching. You think about the last time they even got close was with an extension to Adam Wainwright when it was a $97.5 million extension for Adam Wainwright, who was already a World Series champion twice over pretty much when they made that deal. So the fact that they went to this level, that ownership was willing to go this level um, speaks to their view of Sonny Gray, their view of predictability, um, and also an adjustment to after several years say, all right, we're going to have to change our model to meet the market and be a little bit more risk-taking with how we do starting pitching. How much do you think they've upgraded their rotation, which was the big question going into the offseason? As you know, a lot of uh, there's been a lot of focus on social media on the ages of their rotation and, and the question of whether or not Lance Lynn, you know, Kyle Gibson actually significantly upgrade over what they have. What's your view as someone who sees the team on a day in and day out basis? Mm -hmm. You know, Buster, I want to be consistent because going into last season, one of the biggest questions I had for Mosaic in the front office and the Cardinals in general was where were they going to get their innings from? I just really saw that rotation as a lot of wishes and a lot of hopes, but not a lot of certainty with innings. And if it went sideways, then you knew that they would just run this innings deficit. And I asked, where was that coming from? Um, especially as some of the guys went off to the World Baseball Classic and you started to see more innings from some of the young guys who would be relied on if there was an injury or if there was an inconsistency or any of those things. And then the season played out and they were scrambling for innings the whole time. So if I, if that was my big question going into last year, and then they go out and get now four of the 23 pitchers who had more than 180 innings, add three of them so that they got four in their rotation. They've addressed that big question they had last season. If these guys stay healthy and these, you know, these pitchers are durable. They have a track record Um, what they get within those innings. That's an open question. But it's a really good place for them to start to have addressed what was basically quicksand, um, and they've changed it into a foundation. They've given themselves the innings upon which to build, which is something that you know last year really cost them. And previous years, they were kind of hunting for at the trade deadline, if you recall. So they've moved it up a few notches. And I, like I said, I want to be consistent with that criticism. They, they've, they've addressed the innings question. Now it's about building a contending team that won't collapse because it's looking for innings. 
And theoretically, uh, if you get more innings out of your starting pitching, then your bullpen performance might be better because there won't be as much stress on that group. So that much makes sense. What's their plan for for Lance Lynn? What's your sense? And I know it's early, and they probably haven't even sat down and talked with them about what they want to do with him because, as you know, when he got traded from the White Sox, the Dodgers, the Dodgers you know, looked at all the home runs he was giving up, and they said, you know what? Rather than try to manage your innings, let's just go out, have you go out, throw as hard as you can, pitch, uh, you know, uh, and, and and go as as long as you can, throwing as hard as you can, because that's not working. And it didn't seem like that worked for him either. What's the what's the Cardinals' plan for Lance Lynn? Yeah, I think that's somewhat in development. Um, but their big thing, or the first part of it, is moving him to a different ballpark. Just to be honest, I mean, two two starting pitchers allowed more than forty home runs last year. Both of them happen to be Chicago White Sox, Lance Lynn, Lucas Giolito. So um, they think, you know, they have a fly ball ballpark. They have a pitching friendly ballpark. They think that's the beginning, not the answer. That's the beginning of helping him. You know, with Lance, he he's just he's unapologetic with his use of his fastball, how much he's going to throw it. And so for the Cardinals, it's about looking at, you know, the 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 type of fastball, the movement of the fastball, location of the fastball. They're really intrigued by the number of swings and misses he got, Buster. And how, he would have led the Cardinals in strikeouts, and that's something they want to improve on. So they're really drilling down into, okay, what was it that led to those swings and misses and how to lean into that part of his game. Um, and if some home runs come from it, maybe the ballpark helps contain that. So as you know, there are a lot of guys, uh, elite starting pitchers who were available mm -hmm. in the trade mm -hmm. market, uh, whether it was Tyler Glasnow or Dylan Cease, you know, maybe Corbin Burns, uh, who would require an in-division trade for the Cardinals. And as uh, one executive told me yesterday, he doesn't even know if Corbin Burns is actually really that available. And what's mm. interesting is, is that just in talking with folks with other teams, their perception of the Cardinals right now is that they're a little bit reluctant to make trades. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know if that's fair, if that's uh, but. If one of the executives I spoke with yesterday in the aftermath of the Sonny Gray signing said to me, well, you knew that the Cardinals are going to go the free agency route because they did not want to be in a position where they were making trades. What's mm -hmm. your, you know, I know I've heard you uh, talk about, uh, you know, how hard it was for the Cardinals to watch the playoffs. It felt like every round, you know, yeah. whether it's Adolis Garcia, Randy Rosarena, uh, you know, who were out there competing in the Zach playoffs. Zach Cardinals, yeah, yeah, Zach Allen, former Cardinals, uh, mm. uh, competing in the playoffs. How much is that impacting sort of what they do? I think, you know what, there's two parts of this. And I, I understand where the executive talked to and sort of that sense was because, you know, I heard that some at the GM meetings as well, more from agents and maybe a, a couple rival GMs who are kind of like, well, you know, the Cardinals are really onto this free agent thing. And the perception is that, well, they're a little shy when it comes to trades. And you know, they'll acknowledge that, you know, th those trades have not gone the way they imagined, um, you know, that those players have had, I mean, they're, they're happy that they identified talent and acquired it. And then they use that talent to either streamline or acquire other talent, but it's really the commitment of playing time that they, you know, when they tried to simplify their outfield and focus on the guys they had, like, you know, they, they feel like, you know, some of it was who the other teams wanted, right? Like Tampa Bay interested in Rosarena. Um, Adolis Garcia is a way different thing, but that was a 40 man crunch. Um, in Texas, you'll recall DFA'd him as well. So, yep. um, but it, it was a 40 man roster kind of management situation that, that bumped him from it and the signing of Dong Young Kim from Korea. So, 
you know, the Cardinals are like, okay, they've streamlined the outfield, but they've seen these guys go out and become superstars, become ALCSs. And, you know, the question is, well, who are they going to lose this season? Who's going to be the ALCS in two seasons? They're aware of that. But I will say that one of the reasons why, and this became clear maybe yesterday or over the past week, the Cardinals focused on free agents and they acknowledged that they were on the fringe or tepid or maybe not really like uh, active in the trade talks as they focused on these free agents. As they entered this winter with a strategy, they wanted to acquire innings and a lot of them, and they wanted to make a push for Sonny Gray and and, and one of the other free agent starters, at least explore where Anola was, but they didn't really get very far with him. They wanted to go the free agent route, and then they've talked about this as winter meetings approaches begin more uh, assertively, more curiously, more aggressively explore the trades. They have teams that are interested in their outfield depth. No surprise. There's probably an ALCS MVP there. Who knows? But they won't want to be able to, in the coming week and in the winter meetings, use that time for the theater of trades. And that was kind of how they plotted out their offseason. So this notion that they they weren't really engaged in trade, that's, that was kind of by design, and they're, you're picking up on where they how they approached the last few weeks, which was really free agent heavy, and now it shifts. And what will they use those uh, the trade assets they have among the position players to target? What's the area of need in your eyes? I get my my guess would be organizational pitching of some kind. Yeah, yeah. Um, so areas of need. It's interesting that you put it that way because um, the question I asked Mo yesterday was because you have the innings in place, have you moved from wanting to go for need versus, and now you can go for want? Um, he didn't exactly like that clarification. He said, I'm not quite there with you just yet, um, in part because they see a need for the bullpen, at least one, possibly two additions. Um, trades would be a way to facilitate that. They've had some talks with teams about relievers, um, of you know specific relievers and whether or not there's a match there. They won't shy away from conversations for starting pitchers via trade. Um, Moselak said yesterday he didn't expect to add a starting pitcher. His phrase was, I doubt it. Um, but they want to be open to those conversations if that's where things lead. And if, say, the trade includes a starting pitcher, you know, they have Steven Max, for example, um, as their number five guy right now. So, you know, as the kind of things unfold, the need is bullpen. The need, as you said, is definitely organizational pitching depth. Um, they would like, you know, if they can get some high end starters or prospects to add to the group that they got at the trade deadline, they would welcome that. Um, but that's a want. The need is uh, the, the need is looking at, um, you know, the, the, the bullpen and, and what they can do there for the back end. One minute. Give me your as of this moment. And you're you're allowed to change your, your pick before the start of the season, Derek. As of this moment, who's the favorite to win the National League Central next year? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. But you know what? I, again, I'll try to stick with consistency. I, I always follow the pitching roster when I do these predictions. I always follow the pitching and I always add up the innings. It might be a simplified look at things. It might just be stacking innings. But as of today, the Cardinals have more innings than these other teams. Um, they still have questions, but they have a good lineup. And that that's kind of lost when they're healthy. They have a good lineup. They had a top 10, top eight lineup last year when they had Brendan Donovan and Lars Newpark going in it. Now they've added the innings, which does at least cover a huge weakness and give them consistency series to series from which to contend. Again, it's you're like you said, they're not done yet. The Cubs loom as a legit 
and rising and maybe even forceful um, team in this because of what they can spend. The Reds have a lot of talent, but a lot of those teams have questions when it comes to innings. The Cardinals have answered theirs. Yeah, and I'm really curious about where the Brewers go with their, uh, you know, yeah. their pending free agents, Corbin Burns and Willie Adamas and the others. All right, sir. Well, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you, Buster. Great to hear from you. Have a great, uh, great week. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin and pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit VividSeats.com today. That's VividSeats.com today, code BASEBALL. Vivid Seats, experience it live. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com, and someone who maybe doesn't give enough respect to Thanksgiving, Sarah. Because <laughs> before we got started, you talked about mac and cheese being one of the staples of your Thanksgiving. What is that about? Now, you know I grew up on a farm, and I approve of cheese like you're not, <laughs> and I love mac and cheese, but man, oh, man. All right, so in my defense, as I've stated on here, and I believe I even told Taylor when I spoke to him last week, I am a vegetarian, so I don't eat turkey. I haven't eaten that for a very long time. There has to be something else. Now, again, in my defense, we've not always had mac and cheese. I think it's more of a recent addition, and... It's really good, and you need something. I love cheese. I will eat it in any form. So why not enjoy yourself on Thanksgiving? So my sister's also vegetarian. She made a lentil loaf, okay? Uh, but I can see in your face, you're not wildly excited about that. And I will say, I've been doing this podcast for two years with Sarah Abbott. She's never sent something to the chat room on our Zoom. She's <laughs> dying to get in here to talk about how she's got your back. Sarah Abbott, go ahead. Listen, I stand with Sarah. I'm not even a vegetarian, okay? But the mac and cheese, the mashed potatoes, the stuffing, that's the best part of Thanksgiving. It's all about the sides. Yeah, no, I agree. I love stuffing. 
uh, I, I love potatoes, as I talked about last week, but I don't know. I don't know. Mac and cheese, it just doesn't feel like a Thanksgiving. But you know what? To each their own, right? I mean, as long as there's football on the TV, it's Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's how I define I've never had a traditional Thanksgiving or not in a very long time because I don't need turkey and haven't for a while. So for me, it's about the setting, not the food. All right. Let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 34. So uh, the Cardinals have made a few signings for the rotation lately. Really like the addition of Sonny Gray and Austin. You're a really, really great pitcher. And, of course, anyone who has his sons on his lap during the Cy Young announcement is very much in a good place in my book. But we do have to look at this rotated and think about how old some of these pitchers are. So if you look at the Cardinals' rotation right now, their top four guys are all 34-plus. Sonny Gray is 34, Miles Michaelis is 35, a new addition and return, Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn are each 36. So when you start to look ahead and think about a successful season, you probably want to see at least 20 starts out of each of those guys. There have only been four teams in MLB history to have four starting pitchers at least 34 years old, each wow. makes 20 start in the season. The 2006 Mets, who of course lost the Cardinals, 2000 Braves, 1998 Mariners, and 1945 Cincinnati Reds. So, wow. nothing, I don't believe in these guys. They have really good track record, and there's a reason the Cardinals are getting them. But, they're on the older side, and it's worth looking at that precedent. Number two. Number two is, we'll go with two. So yesterday, there were some trade rumors circling about Alex Bregman. We'll see. I don't know if the Astros wind up training him. But he's certainly going to be a name we're going to be hearing about, given that he's a Boris client, given that he's really, really good, and given that the Astros did not resign Carlos Correa, so there's a bit of precedent there. I want to make sure everyone realizes how good Alex Bregman is, because I think we're in a point where he's almost maybe taken for granted at this point. This two is four. Since the start of 2018, the only other guy on that list is Juan Soto. So we think of really good plates this one. Obviously, we think of Soto. Alex Bregman is the only other guy even close to his level of having that eye and not striking out since 2018. Number one. Number one is one. So another sort of trade rumor guy we have out there. I want to talk about Corbin Burns. Now, there's three certain pitchers out there who we've been hearing a lot about being potentially traded this offseason in Tyler Class now, Corbin Burns, and Dylan Seas. Corbin Burns of the last three years, each season, he's led at least the NL 
at least one category, and that's the one. 2021 led the annual in the area. 2022 led the annual in both starts and strikeups. And this year, he led the annual in whip. So he is a guy who has been very consistently towards the top there. We know how good he is, but I wonder how teams are in measure. He's the middle age of those three glass now. The oldest, Dylan Cease has the most control left, so he would be maybe in the most expensive. But of course, Carmen Burns has a Cy Young, which probably adds to his price as well, but really fun to talk about how good he is. Two quick follow-ups for you. Uh, one, if you're the Astros, would you trade Alex Bregman? Because when I saw that, um, and it's not unusual for teams, as you know, to float names out there just to see what the potential value is. I was like, no way. Like the Astros are still in their opportunity, in a window of opportunity to win. You know, you've got Justin Verlander back next year. You have, uh, you know, Framber Valdez, who you'd hope to have a back, bounce back season. Uh, you know, Jose Altuve is still in the prime of his career. Jordan Alvarez. I'm not trading Alex Bregman. And, and I know, you know, any team that would, uh, you know, potentially look at him would say, Alex is going to be a free agent after 2024, and he's a Scott Boris client, which means he's going to the marketplace. So it's basically a one-year deal. It's like what the, you know, the Red Sox asking around about Mookie Betts when they, when they traded him. I don't think they would get a ton in return, uh, in, in return for a guy who's going to be a free agent next year. And I think that the Astros have a chance to be really good again. I agree. I mean, I think the only way it would happen would be if in July something has gone wrong and the options right. are not where we expect them to be. But I also think that he is a really, really good player and we expect a team like the Astros to do their due diligence. But no, I don't see a team that lost in seven games in the LCS train their start, their basement at this point. But I do think then. As you said, he's had to work in, in the past that hasn't led any of these big name players to resign in Houston, say for maybe Berlander, but in a very different situation. So that's where being a front office person is so hard because if you know that he likely won't resign, you do have to make those calls and see if there's anything that might make sense. And it's not like the Astros haven't dealt with the departures of free agents before. George Springer, Carlos Correa, Verlander, you know, after 2022. So if I'm if I'm the Astros, I'm, I might be talking to teams, but I'm going to keep Bregman in the end. Real quick, give me the team that's going to win the National League Central in 2024. Uh, you know, and that's as of today. You're allowed to change between now and the start of the season. Because I, mean, I, I don't think I, I think at this point it's the Cubs division to lose. That's what I was going to say. I mean, this is a team that at this point we have to expect will make some sort of big splash time, whether it's Otani, who could certainly end up there, whether it's a guy like Blake Snell, who knows bringing back a Cody Mellinger. We don't know what they're going to do, but you don't sign manager and $8 million a year and then not also sign a player to a really big deal. So I highly expect they'll do something. And we're talking about the idea that Corbin Murray 
may not be on the Brewers next year. We're talking about an ultra rotation for the Cardinals. So I'm certainly taking the Cubs right now. All right, Tara, thanks for doing this. Always great to talk with you. And please correct that mac and cheese uh, mistake. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. And you should go have some mac and cheese. And remember <laughs> that it belongs on any table. <laughs> Bleacher Tweets. Already beat Bleacher Tweets for a Tuesday. P.K. Steinberg writes in, does the Cardinal signing of Gray count as a Cyber Monday deal? P.K. I kind of feel like I kind of feel like it is a version of that where I think that part of the Cardinals deal was is that on one hand they wanted to be representative like they were trying look 25 million dollars a year is nothing to sneeze at for Sonny Gray but it also felt like in the choices they made as I said to Derek Gould like they were they were like nah I don't, I, I don't want to spend big you know I, <laughs> I don't think we were, we're ready to spend big does that make sense yeah for sure and I think you know my guy Kyle Gibson heading over I mean he he went over for chump change, really. I mean, you know, he's an he's an average starter, and they didn't pay a lot for him. That's what that says. Yep. Uh, Robbie Parks writes in with the Tigers signing Kenta Maeda. Is this part of a move to get Yamamoto, or just simply adding another arm to the rotation? I think it's adding another arm to the rotation. I think it's them signing a player that they can get. Uh, it's been interesting to see all the different teams that are connected with Yamamoto. I, I mean, you have to remember. If any team is going to sign Yamamoto, they have to beat out the big boys. Like mm. they're going to have to write $250 million checks. I don't, I just don't see the Tigers doing that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really hard for a mid, you know, mid-level, uh, you know, team with a mid-level payroll uh, to, to, to make that, you know, to outbid the Mets and the Yankees and the Dodgers. I just don't see it. The Stone King, Brian Stone King, writes in, my son, who's 26, is discovering how great Bonds was. He doesn't care about PEDs because he knows they were rampantly used by most. It got me fired up again on the Hall of Fame. How can the same writers who gave Cy Young an MVP to Bonds and Clemens seven freaking times withhold votes now? And vote for players who they probably knew were on steroids into the Hall of Fame. As I've talked about many times in the past, Clemens and Bonds are held out as, you know, they get more demerits than anybody else because they were the best players. Like, that's the reason why there's so much scrutiny on those two guys. And it's kind of ridiculous at this point. And I must say, it's it's kind of sat my energy, my enjoyment to, in the Hall of Fame conversation. Sarah, you know, uh, Taylor, I don't know if you guys agree with me. I'm, I, I, I'm not that excited about the Hall of Fame conversation because I'm like, look, Bonds and Clemens aren't in there. Kurt Schilling's not in there. You know, these various people are not in there. And it's all because of, you know, writers selective justice. I, I it just it, it takes the joy out of it for me a little bit. Not interested at all anymore. I mean, it's like it. Wow. It, it, it's like it's there's a hole in the middle of the Hall of Fame. Like, how can you be the Hall of right. Fame without those without Barry freaking Bonds? You're right, Brian Stone King. I'm fired up now, too. This is lame. Yep. Exactly. Sarah, it's behind. I mean, you can't see because we're doing this, uh, you know, on a Zoom call and you can't see. But Sarah just threw a chair against her wall in her apartment <laughs> because she was so mad. Yeah. And I just punched a wall, too. I have a nice. hole in my wall now because I'm to so cold. You got one with a chair and one with your fist. Yeah. Sorry to my landlord. But <laughs> no, I agree. I think it's kind of like an elephant in the room to not have Barry Bonds in the Hall of Fame at this yep. point. <laughs> 
Yo B Simp, Brian Simpson, he writes in, Hey Buster, I remember you talking with Hembo, or maybe he wrote Himbo on purpose, uh, could be, about the Rangers, and particularly Corey Seager would benefit from the elimination of the shift. Had this rule not changed, do you think the Rangers would have won the World Series? Mm, I, I, Yeah, I'd have to think about that. Uh, Seager definitely benefited from it, but it also felt like that Seager took his... I mean, he's hitting the ball in the seats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the reason why he won the World Series MVP is because he hit a bunch of home runs. Last one for today, Lee Patrick Sullivan at the LPS Beat writes in an honor of the passing of Willie Hernandez. He had the greatest reliever uh, season as a reliever, not Zach Britton. In 84, Willie pitched uh, one plus innings 18 times, including a four inning save. He pitched 140 innings, uh, had an ERA of 1.92, 112 strikeouts, 28 walks, and 32 uh, out of 33 save opportunities. Yeah, Willie Hernandez. That really was truly one of the great seasons of all time. Uh, but I do feel like comparing Willie Hernandez from 40 years ago with Zach Britton would be a little bit like uh, comparing Cy Young with Blake Snell. <laughs> like, it's two very different games. You had relievers throwing a lot more innings, not throwing as hard. Uh, I, and, and look, Willie Hernandez was incredible that season in terms of pure dominance in the innings that he pitched. I don't think anybody was better than Zach Britton. What do you think? I mean, you as an Orioles fan, I'll have you weigh in, Taylor. I don't know. The Lee Patrick Sullivan's kind of convincing me here. I mean, this is this okay. is a pretty nice stat line. So you know, I won't I won't rule it out. I didn't watch Willie Hernandez pitch. I didn't exist. So you know, nasty okay. screwball. Uh, and it did. He was one of those relievers where it felt like when he was brought into the game that year, it was over. Like there was no chance you were going to beat him. That's what it sounds like. All right, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter throughout the next week. We'll be back next Tuesday, Buster. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, we'll, and obviously, if there's huge news, if an Otani signs, if Yamamoto signs, then uh, we'll be back on with an emergency podcast. All right, that's it for today. My thanks to Jake Peavy, to Derek Gould, Sarah Langs, Hembo, Sarah Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color something we need to fight against every single day.